Welcome to Zoe Community Church. We're glad you're here. If you're new or visiting, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome you. Glad you could make it. As most of you know, we're preaching through the book of 1 Samuel. That's what we've been doing for the past year or so. Um, and one of the reasons why we go through books is because me and Eric, we went to the Master's Seminary. A lot of you guys are familiar with it. A lot of you even came because of Master's. That's John MacArthur Seminary, in case you were wondering. So you came for the John MacArthur name, and you got me instead. I know, it's kind of the generic knockoff brand, but it's okay. I'll take it. Because we're from Masters, you kind of know what you're going to get, okay? You know that we're going to be Calvinist in our doctrine of salvation. You know we're going to be cessationist when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That means we're not charismatic, not charismatic theologically, or personally, I guess, for that matter, because the way you responded to me, it, it told me something. But the number one thing that Masters and John MacArthur are known for, and really what we major on, are not those things, even though those things are important to us, but what we major on is the expository preaching of the Word of God. That's what we do. Okay, we don't have a lot to offer in other ways. We're not the fanciest church. We don't even want to be, because I feel like sometimes that could take over from what's most important. What's most important to us is letting God set the agenda. And the way we do that is we look to his word and just talk about what he says first. So I don't dream up like some series and then look for some verses that might back me up. We just say, okay, we're going to do 1 Samuel, and after that, 2 Samuel. And that's kind of what we do. Now that being said, all that being said, today uh, we're going to do something a little different. And the reason why is because it's uh, Christmas time, right? You guys know this. Technically, Advent started last week. But we were doing some Thanksgiving stuff. We're a little behind on the holidays. But we're starting an Advent series today. It's that time of the year again. And so even though we like to go through entire books of the Bible, every Christmas time around December, we do what most churches do. We start a Christmas series to remember the birth of Christ. But worry not, this Advent series is going to be expository too. That's what we're going to try to do. Even though we're taking a break from 1 Samuel for a few weeks, we're not taking a break from the Bible. In fact, we might have more Bible today than we've had in a while. So open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2. We've actually preached this, uh, this passage before. Eric preached it way back in the day when we went through Matthew. But Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 12, or at least that's what we're going to read we're actually going to be focusing mainly on one verse, and actually just one word in that verse. Okay, you'll see what I mean in a little bit, but Matthew 2, chapter 1, let's read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. 
And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. God, we come before you this afternoon and we pray that you would speak through your word. God, that is simply what we ask, that you would use your inspired and holy word to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us even, and to train us in righteousness. And on top of all of those things, God, I pray that you would use your word today to point us to Christ. It's so easy for us to be distracted, God. I confess so often, I'm not even thinking about Jesus. But God, I pray that during this time, that our hearts, that our minds, that our eyes would be fixed completely on the person of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would give this time to you as a living offering. And God, I pray that you would give us the grace that we need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been in a position to really bless someone with a gift? Okay, I'm not just talking about getting the perfect gift for someone, like you knew them so well, or you were paying attention to what your wife or your husband said about some shoes they wanted or something, and you found that perfect thing. I'm not talking about thoughtfulness. I'm talking about life-changing kind of stuff. I'm talking about that kind of level where you transform everything about their entire year. And I read this story from a woman named Allie who used to volunteer at this rehab center called New Life. And New Life's focus was to help uh, addicted women and their children kind of get back on their feet. So Allie volunteered there for like a decade plus, And she made it a point usually to try to be there during Christmas. Now, as this one particular Christmas that she was writing about started approaching, she was more excited than usual, and it's because of this girl named Carly. So, Allie, let me give you some background. Allie, she was the kinder music. I think that's what it's called. Do you guys know what that is? It's like this popular music program for kids. But she would go to this rehab center, and she would be the kinder music leader. And basically, the idea behind it was that, you know, these women are going through rehab. It's very grueling and difficult. The kids are kind of there along for the ride. They have no choice. But for like an hour every day, they would try to have some normal parent-child kind of stuff where they could, you know, sing songs together or learn or just spend some time together they didn't have to do with rehab. So it was a special time. And Carly loved this music. She'd laugh and sing and participate in everything, almost as if she forgot where she was for a little while. Now, because of Carly and the other kids, of course, that she got to know, Allie couldn't wait for Christmas. Not because of what she was going to get this year. You guys get where I'm going with this. Not because of what she was going to get, but because of what she was going to give. A group of volunteers every year would set up this tree, and then they would pile up a ton of presents underneath it for the kids, more than any of these kids had ever seen in their entire lives. And this year, when they showed up with the dozens after dozens of wrap boxes, Carly actually greeted them, and it was pure magic. And you can imagine, right? 
Christmas was no formality for kids like Carly. There wasn't going to be any complaining like you might see in a lot of American households during the Christmas season. Oh, how come I only got five gifts? I got seven last year. Oh, I said I wanted this, but how come you didn't get it for me? This was a girl who had nothing. She had been taught by her life circumstances to expect nothing and now was about to receive more than she could have ever dreamt of. And you can imagine too, right, how Allie must have felt to be a part of it. It's a living illustration of Acts 20.35. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, you probably know this passage. We've even taught this passage before at this church, multiple times actually. But from a certain angle, okay, look at it from a different angle. From a certain angle, Matthew 2, 1 through 12 is a story about some people who had a lot and some people who didn't. It's a story about people who could bring gifts like gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and a story of people who never even dreamt that they could get something like this at the same time. Have you ever considered that? Sometimes in the, uh, in the lights and festivities of the Christmas season, we can overlook the simple humanity of the Christmas story. We start to think of the nativity as sanitized and serene, or at a set piece in front of a cathedral. Picture perfect. Forgetting that Jesus was born and laid in a manger where there were actual animals. I mean, think about the sounds and the smells. It probably was not a silent night. We lose sight of how dusty those roads to Bethlehem must have been. We forget how uncomfortable, I mean, we we don't even think about how uncomfortable it surely was for someone who was full-term pregnant to have to travel from Bethlehem in the north, I mean, uh, Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south. I mean, riding on a donkey while you're pregnant, and we don't even know if there was a donkey. We assume there was because it was so far, but the Bible never actually says. Imagine if she had to walk when she's about to give birth like the next day. And we forget just how young Mary and Joseph were. It was a different time, right? In this culture, in this time period, you became an adult at 13. So Mary and Joseph were teenagers. Kids to us, they would have been in the youth group. And it's to this brand new family with an uncertain future that these magi from the east, full of wisdom, arrived to bring three gifts, three extravagant gifts. And that's going to be our Advent series this year. We're going to spend one week talking about gold. We're going to spend another week talking about frankincense. And we're going to spend the third week talking about myrrh. We're going to spend a week each on each of these three gifts. And the plan is we're going to learn what these gifts mean. What does it mean that these were the gifts that were given to the baby Jesus? And we're going to look at what scripture has to say about what these things are. And hopefully, okay, I want to show you how appropriate each of these gifts really are for Jesus. Why gold, frankincense, and myrrh really are the perfect gifts for the Christ. So today we're talking about gold. Okay, that's what we're going to get into. 
We have three points, and because this is kind of the intro to the mini-series we're doing, we're going to start with the story. I want to kind of give you the context here, help you understand the big picture of what's going on. Second, we'll talk about the significance, the significance of gold. And then third, the strangeness, okay? The strangeness of all that's going on right here. So let's get into it. First, the story, the story. We're going to start with a story since, again, this is the first week. And this really serves to situate us, to give us the right frame of mind for Advent this season. What is the story of the birth of Christ? Even if you're brand new to church, okay, even if you haven't been to church in a while, that's okay. We welcome you, even if you don't know that much about the Bible. If there's one story that most people kind of know, even if they're not Christians, it's the Christmas story. We see it all over the place. But here's a question for those of you, especially those of you who have been around. Could you give me the Christmas story accurately from memory? Because we got a lot of stuff floating around. Case in point, I grew up in this Baptist church, and uh, every year the kids would put on a Christmas play, Christmas production. It was more cute than polished. Okay, it wasn't like Prestonwood Baptist or anything like that. Um, But they tried, okay? They would practice, and we had costumes and all of that. Um, and truth be told, I hate doing that kind of stuff. I was like, when I grew up and start my own church, we're never doing that. Maybe we will. I don't know, but I hated doing that kind of stuff. I hated acting, okay, because I'm so humble. I don't want to be up on stage. No, I'm just kidding. I just hated it because I'm prideful, actually. Um, but one year when I was toward the end of elementary school, I think I was in fifth grade, they casted me with a speaking part. Okay, they blessed me with a pretty major role. Any thoughts on what you think I was? Right, future pastor, right? Obviously, wise men. Now, I wasn't a wise man. You, th- you might think that from the text, too. Wasn't a wise man. Wasn't a shepherd. I wasn't Joseph. Definitely wasn't Mary. Wasn't an animal. Sometimes they have animals that talk in these things. You know who they wanted me to be? King Herod. All my issues, right? Okay, this is why I am who I am. Okay, they made me King Herod when I was a kid. Pretty much the most evil person in the entire story. And I distinctly remember practicing my lines. So I'm standing there with like my King Herod get up, and the wise men come to me and they say, Where is the child born King of the Jews? And I say, Bring me my priests and scribes. Let me find out for you. Good times. I mean, because the reason why I asked is so I could find out, so I could kill the baby Jesus. Isn't that great? Praise God. I distinctly remember saying those lines, acting it out. It stuck with me my entire life. But you've seen these kind of productions, right? You've seen Christmas plays. You've seen movies. You've seen cartoons. Maybe you've seen it at church. Maybe you've even acted in it. Almost all of us have some picture in our heads of what happened. In fact, we even have like certain images, certain sounds. We can hear the innkeeper, right, saying, there's no room for you guys here and slamming the door on Mary and Joseph. Or we can hear the animals. We can kind of see kind of what's going on. There's like a little like neat like barn. And then there's like a little trough. And there's some hay. And the baby is like glowing inside of it. And then the wise men are kneeling on one side. And then the shepherds are kneeling on another side. And it's just a peaceful, beautiful scene. But the thing is, a lot of what comes to mind about the Christmas story, naturally for us, is wrong. It's wrong. Okay, if it's not flat out wrong, it's not there at the very least. It's just guesswork. For example, the Bible says that there was no room 
for them in the end. But there is no innkeeper who slams the door. In so many Christmas productions, he is like the secondary villain, right? Besides Herod, like the mean guy who wouldn't let this pregnant woman just come inside for the night. There's no innkeeper. There was just no room. And here's something else more pertinent to our discussion today. The Magi and the shepherds, the wise men and the shepherds did not show up at the same time. Let's look at what actually happened. Verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, so right away, what does it say? This is after Jesus was born. We don't know how much after, but it definitely was a little bit of time. How do we know? Look at verse 11. They go into what? Into the house. They weren't staying in a house when Jesus was born. So they made some long-term arrangements. A little bit of time has passed. See, what happened was Israel had gotten taken over by Rome, by the Roman Empire. And Caesar Augustus, the emperor, had decreed a census that every person who was under his control, under his jurisdiction, had to go to their hometown and be registered as a person. He wanted to count up how many people he had. So listen to what Luke says in Luke chapter 2. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn because of that mean innkeeper. And then Luke tells us, I'm kidding, and then Luke tells us that there were shepherds hanging out around Bethlehem, an angel appeared, and then a bunch of angels appeared singing glory to God in the highest. They were told, right now, a baby was born, go find him, and they run, and they find him, and they worship, and that's the first part of the Christmas story. That's the silent night, quote-unquote, that we sing about. But Matthew 2 tells us of what happened right after this. Joseph and Mary settled down for a bit. They found a more permanent place to stay. And little do they know, but in Jerusalem at this very moment, Herod is receiving an entire honorage from the east. Now, quick question for you guys. You don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you, how many of you would you say your favorite Christmas carol is We Three Kings? Anybody? Oh, okay, all right. More than I expected. I expected a negative number, or at least zero. It's not exactly the song that every famous person is trying to, you know, cover at Christmas. But it's a song. It's probably the song about this story, about these wise men. Except, here's the thing. If you only knew this song, We Three Kings, you'd get almost all the facts wrong. Sorry, guys out there. You can still like it. It's fine. It's a good story. It's not necessarily wrong, but it's a song of speculation. First of all, in the text, they are not called kings. They are called wise men. That's what they are called. In the original language, magoi, where we get the term magi. Magi. They're never said to be kings. Now, they could be wise men and kings. It's possible. It's not out of the realm of possibility. But the actual word used is the word magi from where we derive the English word magic. Kind of funny, right? They are magicians. 
So think like David Blaine, right? Come, no, I'm just kidding. Don't think David Blaine. Don't think like Merlin or something from Legends. Okay, in the ancient world, people who were called magicians, magi, were people who were believed to have extraordinary gifts or extraordinary knowledge. It didn't necessarily even have anything to do with paganism per se. So if you go to the Old Testament, if you look at the book of Daniel, you see that there are guys named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They follow the one true God. They don't believe in pagan superstition at all. And yet they are considered magoi or magi because they have extraordinary gifts and extraordinary knowledge. Now we know that it comes from God, but that's how people were viewed. Now, some of these people, they were into astrology. Of course, if they weren't Jewish, they didn't know about God necessarily. But that's what magi are. Now, the song says, too, that there are three kings. But the Bible actually never says how many magi there are. It could be an entire group. It could be two. We know it's plural. It just says that there are three gifts. And we're making a jump to think that each person just brought one. So we don't know. It says that they are from the east, and the song says that they are from the orient. But it might not be the orient that you guys are thinking, okay? For them, it's not the far east. It's just the eastern part of the Middle East. They're probably from Babylon or Persia. We don't know specifically. And that's the thing about the Magi. It's that we don't really know a lot about them, and the Bible does that on purpose. The Bible withholds the details from us. What it chooses to focus on instead is what they are searching for, or rather who they are searching for. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This was my one shining moment. Verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So they go to Bethlehem, the city of David, verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod's lying here. Okay. He's being cunning. He doesn't want to worship him. He actually wants to kill him. One born king of the Jews. That's a direct threat to the current guy holding that title. Verse nine. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, people always have questions about the star. Clearly, it's not a normal star. Okay, it's not, you know, a ball of energy in space. But that's all we know for sure. It's some special kind of light that appears in the night sky that leads them right to where baby Jesus is. Even the star itself, even this light is pointing to something else. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that's the story. Okay, I know that there's more maybe to this text, but we already preached that. The story is right here. They travel to him, they look for him, they ask about him, they follow the star to him, they find him, they worship him. They're completely focused on him. They're focused on him. The whole story is, even Herod is, 
I mean, in a twisted, obsessive, sinfully motivated way. But the entire focus of all the people in this story is Jesus. Now, it goes without saying, I think, but I think we actually got to say it. It goes without saying that the birth of Jesus, that the Advent season, that the Christmas holiday is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's supposed to be all about him. But the thing is, I mean, I'll just speak from my own experience. I know how distracted I can be during the Christmas season. I literally am writing these Christmas sermons about Jesus, about the birth of Christ, while my mind, like 75% of it, is working on something else, thinking about my to-do list, thinking about the gifts that I need to ask Christine what she wants because I didn't even ask her yet. I got to think about, you know, the things that I want, obviously, because I'm selfish like that. You know, like, I, I'm just being honest about what goes through my mind. Oh, it'd be really great to have that, or we should go here. We should, I'm distracted. That's the point. I'm distracted. I'm always thinking about other things besides Jesus during the season where we celebrate the birth of Christ. I'm distracted. How about you? I mean, just think about your life. How about you even right now? I mean, you're probably like, oh, man, this is kind of a boring sermon. I want to find out about First Samuel or something, anything. I already know about this story. I saw some people getting a little sleepy during the first point, too. And I understand. I know the story, too. I lived it, okay? I acted this story. But seriously, are you here at church because you've heard who he is and your heart wants to worship him? Because if there's one thing that Matthew 2, 1 through 12 is about it's about people whose hearts are set on finding Christ no matter the cost and yet so often in the christmas productions we see it's the spectacle that takes center stage it's the live animals so cool it's the costumes it's the angels it's the decorations it's the poinsettias it's the lights it's the singers and the songs and all of those things are good actually i think they are fine they could be wonderful things to celebrate but How come Jesus, my question is, how come Jesus gets lost in those things so often? How come when we talk about Jesus, it's the most boring part of Christmas for some of us? See, if we're going to follow the wise men, let's just start right here. Follow the wise men because they will lead you to Jesus. Take a breath, slow your mind, remember, follow, and rejoice. Christmas at its best is a time where Jesus, who so often exists in the background, comes to the focus, comes into focus, excuse me. And this leads to the second point, the second point. They find Jesus and right away they give him these gifts. The first gift they gift is gold. Second point, the significance, the significance. The story is about Jesus. The gifts shed light on who he is. Verse 11 Let's read it again. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The first gift is gold. And out of the three, this is the one that is most familiar, right? I think we know what gold is. I mean, who here could pick out frankincense out of a lineup? I don't even know if I could. Like on an Amazon store, like name which of these things is frankincense. I'd probably fail. Would you be able to recognize myrrh if it passed you on the street? Probably not. But gold, okay, gold, we all recognize it. I mean, the Olympics were earlier this year. 
If you win an event, if you're the best in the world at what you do, what do they give you? They give you a gold medal, right? If you're second best, they give you silver. If you're best, they give you gold. People buy gold because it has intrinsic value. We hear stories of the gold rush and Fort Knox where gold is hidden behind these advanced security systems. The first thing to understand about gold is that it is precious. It's valuable. It's expensive. But that's only part of the equation. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Song of Solomon. First time I ever said that at Zoe. Never thought I'd be saying it at Christmas, but turn with me to Song of Solomon. It's a short book. It's after Ecclesiastes, which is after Proverbs, which is after Psalms. So it's toward the middle-ish of your Bible, Song of Solomon. And go to chapter 3. Song of Solomon, chapter 3. Fun fact, there are only three places in the Bible besides Matthew 2. Or I guess that's one of them. So only two places besides Matthew 2 where gold, frankincense, and myrrh show up all together. And this is one of them. Look at verse 6. Song of Solomon 3, 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? Perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with a sword at his thigh and against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its post of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go, uh, go out, O daughters of, Jeru- of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Now, there's a lot of things we could talk about in here. But basically what we see is Solomon arriving for his wedding. One of his hundreds of weddings, okay, but that is neither here nor there for today. But he is here for his wedding. He's here in his fancy royal carriage, which is made up of wood, good wood, silver, and gold. And his entourage is perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. Now, we'll talk about the other place where all three show up in another sermon, one of the, one of the next two. But it's telling that gold, frankincense, and myrrh are mentioned. Before they're mentioned with Jesus, they're mentioned with Solomon. Because who is Solomon? Solomon is the king. Solomon is the son of David. People love to talk about how wise Solomon was, but he wasn't just wise. Solomon was the richest king in Israel's history. So turn with me to 1 Kings 10. This is right after 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 Kings 10. I want to show you something. 1 Kings chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 14. And the heading in the ESV says Solomon's great wealth. And they're not kidding. Okay, it's almost an understatement. 1 Kings 10, starting in verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that which came from the, explor- uh, from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, 
600 shekels of gold went into each shield, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three miners of gold went into each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing besides the armrests, while 12 lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the force of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with a fleet of Haram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to, bring, used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. And you can stop there. I think we get the picture There are two words that are repeated again and again in this passage on Solomon's great wealth. The first one is gold. If there's one thing that characterized the kingdom of Israel during Solomon's reign, it was gold. The sheer amount of gold Solomon had is staggering. A talent is about 75 pounds. Solomon in one year was given 666 talents. Now, if you know anything about Solomon, that number is probably a red flag, I think. But again, that is neither here nor there. But he got a lot of gold. Plus, he made these shields of pure gold. He made a throne of ivory covered in gold. His cups that he drank from were made of gold. And did you notice verse 21? Nothing was of silver because he had so much. Silver was just common. The only thing that mattered was gold. That's the first word. What's the second word in this passage? Verse 15. The kings of the West. Verse 16. King Solomon. Verse 17. And the king put them in the house. Verse 18. The king. Verse 20. Any kingdom. I could go on and on. But first king, first kings 10 intertwines these two concepts. Kingdoms and gold. Royalty and gold. Gold is the precious metal that signifies royalty. It's the very best that you can give. And I know someone here is thinking, what about platinum? So I did some research on that. And the price of platinum actually fluctuates a lot. And right now, actually, pure platinum is worth less than gold. Gold is it. Gold is the best metal that you can get. So the fact, okay, bring it all together. So the fact that the Magi... They give this baby Jesus gold, says something. I mean, obviously, Mary and Joseph don't have a lot. If they gave them bronze, it would probably have blessed them. If they gave them silver, that would have been amazing. But only gold was deemed worthy. Why specifically only bring gold? Well, hear it from their own mouths. They asked Herod, where is one born king of the Jews. They bring Jesus gold, not because he's poor actually, but because in their minds, he's worthy of it. Gold is a gift that's fit for a king. And that's the significance. The gold points us to the kingship of this child that is in a manger. I guess they didn't, they came later. Maybe he's in a crib by now. Maybe they built up a pack and play. Who knows? This baby born to a poor couple is actually the king, and not just the king of the Jews, though he is, but the king of heaven and earth. Jesus is the king. Now keep that in mind. Go with me to Malachi chapter 1. 
This is the last book of the Old Testament. Right before the New Testament, right before Matthew, Malachi 1. Malachi was a prophet. In fact, he was the last prophet. He was the last prophet in Israel before 400 years of radio silence from heaven. God stopped speaking to Israel until John the Baptist showed up way later. But Malachi is the last one. And God used Malachi to speak some pretty harsh things to his people. But I want you to hear something starting in chapter 1, verse 13. This is God speaking through Malachi to the people. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The people were still going through the motions. They were still sacrificing and making offerings to God like they were supposed to. If you want to kind of make it analogous to modern day, they were still showing up at church, still cracking open their Bible, still giving a little bit of tithe. If you asked them, they would have said, of course God is our king. We worship him as a great king. So why does God use Malachi to call them out? Because even though they were technically giving, they weren't giving their best. In fact, they were giving their extra, even their worst. They were bringing what was already injured or sick, animals that they would want to get rid of anyway, animals that wouldn't hurt them at all if they didn't have them anymore, didn't really cost them anything. So God says, I see you. I see you dragging your feet, complaining how wearisome it is to have to make offerings. I see you bringing whatever offerings. God says, my name will be feared among the nations, for I am a great king. That's who he is. So back to our text. Go to Matthew 2. Matthew chapter 2. What do we see here in Matthew 2? What do we see here in Matthew 2? We see people coming from a different nation who fear God, and they have come to give their best to the king. They travel far over land. They look unceasingly for him. They ask about him. They follow the star to him. They find him. They worship him. They give their very, their very best to him. And if they were kings, as some people think they are, as some songs might suggest, then they are giving up what belongs to them because this king in their minds is greater. Here's a lesson. Here's a lesson. What you give to Jesus shows what you truly believe about him. Let me say that again. What you give to Jesus shows what you truly believe about him, who you believe him to be. The proof is in the pudding. Who do you believe Jesus is? Don't answer that. Just look at your life. Look at what you give to him, and that'll say everything. If you truly believe he's the Savior, then you will give him all of your trust. If you truly believe that he is the Lord of lords, you will give him all of your life. And if you truly believe that he is the king of kings, what do kings deserve? They deserve gold. They deserve your best. And it's not just money, okay? It's not just about gold, okay? It's not about us trying to trick you into tithing more in the fourth quarter. It's not about your possessions. It's about you. It's about who you are. Do you give the best of your time to him? It's convicting. I'm convicted. A lot of times I like to pray like 
in bed right before I go to sleep. I'm trying to like cut that out of my life because I realize how does this honor God where I'm falling asleep while I'm praying to him? Do you give the best of your intention when, when you're at church? I mean, you have this one hour and a half, I guess, because I'm kind of long-winded, but we have this small amount of time. I mean, I think we have 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. We have this little, small percentage of time that we can give directly to God, but we're so distracted. Are you distracted? Are you distracted? When you're singing songs or even thinking about the words that are coming out of your mouth, when the scripture reading is happening, are you thinking, this is the word of God. I need to be reverent here. You get the best of your schedule. I mean, is it a given for some of you guys that there are certain things that you have to, you know, you have to do? Like if my boss tells me at work, I got to do this, then I got to do it. Even if I have to cancel on my family, even if I have to skip church, I got to do it. I just have to. Why is that the case with your boss at work, but not with the king of kings? Are you the kind of person who would never say no to certain things, but often say no to Christ? If you are, what does that say about you? What does that say about what you think of Jesus? Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not just about quantity, okay? Years later, after this, when Jesus is an adult, he goes to the temple, and he sees these people making a show of giving so much, and they truly do give a lot. They give all this money to God, to the temple, to the funds, but Jesus is not impressed. And then he sees a widow giving just a couple of pennies, and he says, truly, truly, she gave more than all of them because she gave all that she had. It's not about how much you give. It's, about, uh, it's not about comparing yourself to others. It's about your heart. It's about you and Jesus. The question is, do you think that Jesus is worth your best? And this leads to the final point. The strangeness. The strangeness. The truth is, Jesus is a great king. Whether or not you and I agreed to that or acknowledged it or even believed it, It doesn't change the objective reality. Jesus is the king who was, who is, and who always will be. But there's more to this story. There's even more to the significance of gold. Because what does the gift of gold point to? Jesus' kingship. But if that's the case, Jesus is the strangest king of all time. In fact, this passage is strange in many ways. Let me show you. Clearly, God's hand is with the wise men, first of all. He sends the star that actually leads them to Jesus. He gives them a dream that warns them to avoid Herod. God is with them. But they aren't Jews. They're magicians from the east. So why are they seeking out the king of the Jews? It's very strange. And there's also the question, what exactly do they get out of all of this? I think it's quite plausible people might travel over land and sea if there was some kind of reward at the end of the rainbow. Right? If this was Jesus as an adult and you found out that he was healing people and making the blind see and uh, making the deaf hear and all of that, of course you would travel to come get healed or to come see a miracle. But this is the baby Jesus. What do they get? I mean, they're going to actually give gold to make a sacrifice to him of their possessions. And then when they do it, they give him their most valuable possessions and they're not sad about it. They're actually happy. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy, the text says. There aren't enough words to describe how happy they are. That's why it's so awkward in the English. It's almost delirious joy. Basically, they're stoked to do this. It's very strange. 
But at the heart of this strange story, the strangest thing about this story is the kind of king that Jesus is. Now, you got to understand something. Let's zoom out the camera a little bit. During this time in Israel's history, again, they were under Roman oppression. Like, imagine how terrible that would be for your life. And there are people who are just over you, who rule over you. You're subjected to this king that lives hundreds of miles away, that doesn't know you, doesn't care about you. The politics, the cultural movement around this time was all about hoping for someone who would deliver them from the yoke of slavery to Rome, of subjugation to Rome. And there was a prophecy that's in the Old Testament that God would send a king in the line of David who would be the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, and he would lead his people, Israel. And during this time, faith in that prophecy was reaching like a boiling point. People had had enough of Rome, and they were looking for the Messiah. And to make it worse, Rome put King Herod in charge, this cruel, vindictive man who wasn't even Jewish. So the people were longing. They were desperate for a king. But I want to show you something. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Of course, we're going to go to 1 Samuel, of course. Because i got to tell you that you're more like Saul than David. Thanks, Eric. No, that's not why I'm going here. 1 Samuel 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's been a while since we covered this, so let me remind you, 1 Samuel 8 is where Israel wants a king. Not that different than during the days of Jesus. They want a king. They long for a king. The dream was that this king would lead them in victory against all of their enemies. But right here, Samuel, he understands what's going on and he tries to stop them. Look at verse 4. 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. It's a great line there to say that to someone sometime. Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all of the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have, get this, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God was their king. Verse 8. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take, get this, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. What Samuel says to the people is that you want a king? Just know what you're asking for. Your king is not going to make your lives easier. Your king will help you, but you have to understand what kings are. 
at the end of the day, a king will rule over you. A king will take your best. He will demand your very self. And because he is the king that you wanted, your king, he will deserve it. And you're going to hate it. And that's the thing about kings. They deserve your gold. They have the right to take it by definition. This is hard for us to even, or hard for us to accept, but even hard for us to comprehend as Americans. We don't even want to pay taxes on our tea, much less give some king hundreds of miles away our gold. I'm for one glad that America is not a monarchy. But if you're a church-going Christian, you have to understand that ultimately, realistically, on a spiritual, eternal level, ultimately, we do live in a monarchy. As the great American theologian Kanye West said recently, Jesus is king. Couldn't be a truer statement. Jesus is king. So you see, Jesus deserved every ounce of gold those wise men had. He deserved it by divine right. What they gave him was not doing him a favor at all. Jesus is the king who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All of it is his. But the strange thing was, even though he deserved it, he didn't demand it. And you might say, well, he's a baby. Of course, how's he going to demand it? He never demanded it. Later on in the book of Matthew, Matthew 8, a scribe comes up to Jesus and he says he wants to follow Jesus. And it says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is the king of kings. Later on in life, he is homeless, doesn't even have a bed. Jesus was the king of poverty by choice. See, God didn't send Jesus to be born and to grow up in a palace, though he was a king. Jesus never wore a gold crown on his head or sat on a gold throne his entire earthly life. Jesus was born king of the Jews, but he was completely different than what they expected. Turn with me to Matthew 27, and we'll land this plane Matthew 27. This title, King of the Jews, doesn't show up in the book of Matthew that often. It shows up here in Matthew 2. And then it shows up again at the very end of the book, at the end of the story, Matthew 27. Look at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. Skip down to verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had, then a, uh, they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of... T- uh, because of him today in a dream. Now the tree priests and the elders persuaded, uh, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. 
the people that, have, that should have fallen on their faces before the king of the Jews shouted instead for his torture and death. Skip down to verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Keep reading. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And get this, verse 37. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, who? The King of the Jews. So in the big picture of Matthew, hear the question again. Where is the one born King of the Jews? Matthew 27 gives us The other answer, it's right here. Nailed through his hands and feet onto a Roman cross. He who deserved everything that we could ever give and more, our gold, our our lives, our best, is hanging on a cross, giving his life as a ransom for many. So let's bring it full circle. Have you ever been in a position to really bless someone with a Christmas gift. I'm talking about, you know, transform their entire year. I'm talking about changing their entire life kind of levels. The answer, actually, that I'm getting at is, I don't know about you, but God has. See, guys, Christmas ultimately is not about what you can give to God. I mean, you knew that I was going to preach kind of convictingly. That's kind of my MO. I'm the bad cop. Eric's the good cop. But Christmas, ultimately, it's not about what you can give. Does Jesus deserve everything? Yes. But even if you gave your best, that's still not enough. That's not what Christmas is about. It's not about what you can give. Christmas is about what God gave to you. God deserves our best. He doesn't need it. But it's about God giving his best, his very own son, to sinners like us. See, everything is backwards. It's strange. It's not about what God deserves. It's about what we don't deserve. The apostle Peter put it like this. He says in 1 Peter 1, 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with, listen to this, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Gold to God isn't that valuable. It's perishable. It'll pass away. The most valuable thing that you could ever give or receive at Christmas or in eternity is the precious blood of Christ. Christmas is about God giving sinners like you and me the one gift, the only gift that could change not only our lives, but our entire eternal destinies. He gave us his son born to be the crucified king. And I don't know how much the Magi got, but they got this. To give to Jesus wasn't a sacrifice. It was a joy. To find Jesus was an honor for what they received in him and knowing that he was born was far greater than anything they could have ever given. We'll close here. 
Back to the story. <clears throat> Allie and the other volunteers, they were blessed to give out all their gifts. They had so much to give, to give to those who seemingly had so little. There were hugs and smiles and laughter. It was pure magic. But finally, when it was time to leave, Carly ran up and said, Miss Allie, I have a special present just for you. And filled with excitement, she reached out her small hand and placed a tiny pink hair curler into Allie's hand. And truth be told, it wasn't that nice. It was cheap. It was even broken a little bit. But it was everything that she had. And Allie never forgot it. See, the thing is, you read the story from one angle, and you think it's about this person who has everything, who volunteers to give to people who have nothing. But actually, it was the other way around. It was Carly who gave the life-changing gift to Allie. Christmas, it's not just about some baby born in a manger, any old baby. It's not a cute story. It's not just about a holiday to stress over for a few weeks and then forget. It's not a glamorous story in the traditional way that we think of glamour. But in Christmas, through every single part of it, the dusty roads and no room in the inn and an average, maybe even destitute couple and a seemingly normal baby lying in a manger, God was giving us literally the best possible gift that has ever existed for all eternity. A king, the king of kings, yet who came not to be served but to serve and to give. So this Christmas, will you take a moment and just remember that? This Christmas, will you take a moment just to give thanks and to rejoice? Will you pray with me? Father, we know that you deserve our best. You deserve our love, our hearts. But God, we know that we fall short. So God, we thank you that salvation and a relationship with you, they're not determined by what we give, but they rest completely on what you gave to us. God, if it was up to us, none of us would be saved. But because Jesus lived the life we never could, because he came to be born as one of us, because he died in our place, we can be forgiven. We can be saved. And God, I pray for every single person in this room, myself included. Wherever we're at, however we've been doing, I pray, God, that you would draw our gaze to Christ. I pray that for those who are not saved, who feel hopeless this Christmas, that they would see that hope was born in a manger 2,000 years ago, that it's not about what they do, it's about what he did. And I pray for those of us who are distracted. God, I pray that you'd help us to remember that Christmas is about the most important thing. And not only that, the greatest gift that we could ever have dreamt of. God, you blessed us so much. So God, because you've loved us so much, I pray that you'd help us to love you in return. We thank you, God. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.